Uh, my name is Steve Keller. I am the senior pastor here, or the lead pastor if you don't know me. Um, happy Palm Sunday to you, or whatever the descriptor is we're supposed to put in front of Palm Sunday. I always get hung up on some of those, but I'm so glad you're with us today. And what we want to do is we want today to lean into the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, if you're wondering uh, it, just today, why, why, why for people like Jeff, for people like you and I, that's why, that's why he came. That's what this is all about. So I don't want to get ahead of, self, ahead of myself with preaching. So um, let me kind of walk us into this. Uh, it was alluded to in the last song that we sung. Um, Jeff just got into this a little bit. But just as an advertisement for who Jesus is, if you have not realized this, let me say this to you today. The person of Jesus Christ is absolutely amazing. Um, he is so utterly unlike anyone else who has ever walked this planet and every, ever, anyone who ever will. He is so unlike and far above the greatest things that have ever happened on this earth. Um, apart from the work of God. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Wow, that's a big deal, right? Jesus, according to Scripture, He is the life and the very light of God. The Bible tells us that God is love. Jesus is love. He is our rescuer. I mean, Jesus is all about turning dark lives all around. Um, people who are tumbling toward death, giving them life. Um, to behold Jesus is to behold God. Isn't that incredible? If you've ever had a moment in your life where you kind of glimpse Jesus, or you're reading a scripture and the light comes on, you're, you're actually glimpsing, you're getting a glimpse of God the Father. Uh, Colossians, uh, yes, 1.15 says that. Uh, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's amazing. I mean, just it, that, that's, that's the short resume of Jesus, by the way, right? There's a whole lot more. And what, I, what I'll just say to that is hallelujah to that and amen to all of that for, for any one of us who believe, um, who have met Jesus in this life. I mean, it, it's the greatest news of all time for, for those of us who are walking with him. But here's the thing. For those who are outside of Jesus Christ, all of that description I just gave, the scripture here, everything we're celebrating, that's a lot to wrap your heart and your mind around. I mean, it is a whole lot. I mean, it's a gigantic thing to get all of that outside of Jesus Christ, especially because at the end of this, when we get to salvation, what we are doing when it comes to Jesus, inviting him into our lives, what we're doing is we are exchanging our lives for his life. You know, I mean, we're dying to who we were and we're, we're taking up a whole new life in him. That is a huge thing for people. And so what many people do before Christ, and I did this before Jesus in my life, um, what a lot of people do is, is in an attempt to make sense of Jesus, um, we kind of reshape him. You know, we, we recast him into something we can't understand something we, we can get, you know, something that kind of works for us, that we can make sense out of, and uh, someone who kind of meets our needs. We do that outside of Jesus. One popular trend today um, when it comes to, to figuring out Jesus apart from salvation in Scripture is to actually cut Jesus away from the rest of the Bible. 
And you may have heard of this. It's called red-letter Christianity, and it's where you remove the Old Testament from Jesus, the Old Testament prophecies. You remove the Gospels, which is all the eyewitness accounts of people who actually knew him and walked with him and saw him and, and talked with him, and then kind of removing the rest of the, the New Testament as well. And so what you end up with are only the spoken words of Jesus. And there's a whole movement where people say, let's just focus on what he said to us. And there's an appeal to that. But the problem is, as we just alluded to, what you're doing is cutting away 96% of the Bible. And also, by the way, just about everything that challenges modern day thinking. So it's a big trend. Another trend right now, and this has been around for a while, is to actually downplay the cross. Um, downplay our need for forgiveness and our need to be made right with God. And all of that kind of begs the question, where are people getting this stuff? But there's a better question, and the better question is, where do we go to get spiritual clarity? Where do we go to make sure that, you know, we, we, we really understand the big picture and who Jesus is? Where we go to, obviously, you probably knew I was going to say this, where we go to is the Word of God. And we let God tell us who He is. And we let God tell us what He did, and even most importantly, why He did it. Instead of following spiritually confused people down dark roads that really end up nowhere. So what we're going to do this Communion Sunday is we are going to join Jesus at the end, okay? Now, there's a lot there, and it would be a very long sermon. Okay, if we went through all of it, so what we're going to do is we're going to focus on one moment, okay? We're going to, we're going to join Jesus for his last Passover celebration, we're going to join Jesus for his very last supper on earth. And what, what should happen um, as we do this is we should find ourselves by the end of this very ready to take communion and also very ready to enter into Holy Week. So let me pray and then let's get at it, okay? Jesus, who you are is astounding. We've already said that. And Father, we, we want today to, to behold you. Um, Jesus, we, we really want to join with these disciples around this table and, and hear your words spoken not only to them but to us. Father, somehow we, 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 we just want um, to be made ready. And this is a week where we really do focus on the end, the death of Christ and, and what it meant and why it was necessary so that we can truly enter into resurrection next Sunday. So God, speak to us. Jesus, Help us to see you clearly. Holy Spirit, minister our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. All right, folks, here we go. Luke 22, 1 through 6. Now, the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Judas consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when there was no crowd present. Now, 
Um, the action here is pretty easy to follow, okay? I mean, I think anyone can read along and go, I get the gist of what's going on. So I wanna, I wanna point out a, a couple of big things here that actually add a little bit more to the story. Um, here are the religious leaders, okay? Uh, uh, you know, all the guys in the temple, Pharisees, Sadducees, and as Luke 22 opens, they are in their usual conundrum, all right? They have been living with a pickle all the way through the Gospels, and the pickle is they want to get rid of Jesus. Now, that is code for they want him gone, dead, killed. So this is a murderous getting rid of somebody. They want to get rid of Jesus, but the pickle is, the problem is Jesus is always surrounded by people who love him, people who are following him, people who, are, who have been seeing, you know, Maybe he is the one. Look at what he does. So they're enamored. There's this groundswell. Jesus, to, to kind of borrow bar some modern-day lingo, Jesus is a rock star at, at this point in the hearts and the minds of many. People love him, and, they, and a lot of them would do anything for him. And so this is in the way for the religious leaders. There's just no chance, no opportunity to get rid of Jesus. And just so you know, this is not a feeling that has come lately uh, to these guys. They have been feeling this way uh, since the very beginning, right? When Jesus starts ministry three years earlier, we can look, for example, in Luke 4, 29, when Jesus steps into the synagogue, uh, seemingly for the first time, he reads the scroll of Isaiah, and then he drops the big reveal, which is, hey, the Messiah that you've been waiting for, here I am. Jesus self-reveals that he's the Son of God and he's the Messiah. And the reaction um, from the, the temple leaders is, and, and the crowd there in that moment is they take Jesus to a cliff and they intend to throw him off and kill him for being a heretic. So they've been feeling this way a long time. And by the way, it doesn't happen because um, God has a plan. And this plan is just starting in the Gospels. Jesus has a mission. He has not fulfilled the mission yet. So it's not God's time. It's not God's plan. But now when we get to Luke 22, it is time. It is the very end. The death of Jesus is imminent. I mean, it's, it's just hours, hours away from kicking into motion. And so what happens right here is that Satan enters into Judas Iscariot, who has been a willing vessel all along for the devil. Now, you might hear that and go, oh my gosh, Steve, how could you say that about poor Judas? I mean, how can you point all the way back and, and say that all along with Jesus, he's been like that? And it's pretty simple according to scripture. It's because as you read along in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when it comes to Judas, we have nothing. The man has no shining moments. There are no highlights of Judah, Judas except for one in John 12, 4, um, and I'm afraid we're going to have to redesignate this as quite a low light, where we learn that Judas has been stealing from Jesus all along. They have a ministry fund that is used for travel, to help the poor meet whatever needs. It's taken up by offerings and, and other people who support. And we find out that Judas has been stealing from this all along. He's been skimming off the top. Well, now when we get to Luke 22, what's happened is that here is a man who has been eaten up by that greed and by that corruption. 
You know, this is one of the truths of sin that we, we probably all know, and it's that when we engage with sin willingly in our lives, that sin is never neutral. You know, it doesn't just kind of sit there and you stay there at stage one. When we embrace sin in our lives, it gets darker. You know, we get more corrupt inside. We die more inside. Well, Judas now is at the place where he is consumed by greed and corruption to the point that Satan can now just use him outright. And so Judas does something that makes us all gasp the first time he reads it. Judas goes to the religious leaders and he agrees to help them find an opportune time you know, a time when everybody's not around Jesus where they can nab him. And Passover is the perfect moment. Why? Because all the Jews, during the, the celebration of the Passover feast, they are with their families in their homes taking this meal together. As a Norval Geldenhues, there's a little, I think, a Dutch or German name for you, as he writes, hardly a single Jew would have been on the streets that night. And so this is the perfect moment to, uh, to, to throw this whole thing into gear. And there's an irony here, and the irony is that historically, Passover celebrates something, doesn't it? It celebrates the Jews' deliverance from Egypt and the birth of of the nation way back in the book of Exodus. And back in Exodus, what happened was that the, the Jews took the blood of a lamb, a sacrificed lamb, a pure lamb, and they painted it on the thresholds of their doors. And then God said this in Exodus, uh, Exodus 12, 13, this blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, the, the, the incredible thing here is that Jesus is about to be the ultimate Passover sacrifice. See, see in the Old Testament, Passover wasn't meant to be a one-off, right? just for the Jews back then. It was pointing to a time in the future when another spotless lamb would come and his blood would be shed and people wouldn't be delivered from Egypt. People would be delivered from sin. Everything that holds us back and entraps us and kills us spiritually, that time would come. And so here is Jesus, and guess who that Passover lamb is going to be? It's going to be him. And so this is happening at the perfect moment. He will be the sacrifice for our sins. Well, the scene now shifts to a few hours before the Passover meal. So here we have Luke 22, 8 through 13. Jesus now sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. Jesus replied, as you enter the city, Jerusalem, um, as you enter, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where my, I may uh, eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Um, again, 
The action here is very easy to follow. Thank you, Luke. He's known for that. Um, So I just want to point out one thing that's really neat in verse 10, and it's how they find the upper room. Um, Jesus says they are to look for a man carrying a water jar, and that's going to be it. That's your signal. That's your dead giveaway. So how is that a dead giveaway, right? There's no water system back then. People are carrying jars. Well, the giveaway is that back then in that culture, in that time, only women carried jars of water. So if you see a man with a jar of water, it's a dead giveaway. And so here we learn two things. Um, first of all, we learn how lazy men were back in... No, we don't really learn. No, but what we learn is just this beautiful divine strategy of Jesus. I mean, this is some God thinking here to pull this off. And um, so anyway, we get right there. And now we come to the part of the story where the Word of God sets the real spiritual storyline, okay? This is where um, we see the truth of the cross established for us that a blood sacrifice for our sins was absolutely necessary. Okay, we, we, we also see here that this was always God's plan. We're gonna see here in just a minute that Jesus always knew about this plan and we're gonna see that Jesus embrace this plan because that's part of some of the modern day kind of broken theology that, you know, this all just kind of happened to Jesus. And, you know, well, God, God wouldn't have done this willingly to his own son. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus just w- w- wasn't even in the know. We're going to let the, the word of God straighten that out. So here we go. Verses 14 through 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, but before I uh, kind of break that down a little bit, I I just want to say this to you. Again, it's hard for folks to grasp what is going on here. I remember for for me, before I, I said yes to Jesus, invited him into my life. One of the things that I really struggled with was not that all of this was true in Scripture. What I struggled with was that God could be that good. I struggled with just the whole notion that God could love like this. That's the struggle I had. Um, I I struggled that, that Jesus would ever do this for people like us. And so, so here we go back to the text, okay? Just having said that, um, the fact that Jesus knew what was coming and Jesus embraced it and that this was God's plan, it's impossible to miss it here in Scripture. Now, there are other places we can look, but even just right here, verse 15, I will eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Before I suffer? You think he knew? Um, Verse 16, I will not eat it again on this earth until it is fulfilled 
in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, I will not drink again from the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. Does Jesus know that this is his last Passover meal? Does he know that this is his last supper? Uh, Verse 19, this bread is my body broken. Verse 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which will be poured out. Again, when we let Scripture tell the story, the truth is so clear. So did Jesus know it was coming? Absolutely. He knew it all along, and and I used this phrase a minute ago, a one-off. It wasn't a one-off. This wasn't a, Luke 22, oh, I get it now for Jesus. He's been talking about this all along in the Gospels. He's referred to his death time and time again. You you remember the disciples, you know, that he'll talk about it, and they're, oh, oh, he must be talking about something else. uh, uh, You know, they, they get lost in this. He's been talking about it over and over again. He's predicted it. And when I say he's predicted it, Jesus predicts it exactly as it will happen. I'll be arrested. Here's who who will be behind it. He knows. Now, how do we know that he embraced this, though? How do we know that, that Jesus actually desired the cross and the crucifixion? That's a good question. Well, we we get a little bit of a hint from context, actually a strong hint from context in verse 15 when Jesus says from his own lips, he eagerly desired this to happen. He, He is eagerly embracing this last meal and everything that it signifies. We also have in Hebrews 12 too, uh, where it says, Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus knowing what the cross would mean for us. Jesus, knowing the life that would just be poured out over people for all time, he embraced this. But there's even a bigger question, okay? We've already got good news, right? We've got the best news ever, but there's another question I really do think we need to answer. And you already know most of you the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The question is, why? Why did Jesus do this? Why would Jesus do this? And um, the answer lies here in verses 19 and 20, and I really invite you to hear these two words that are attached, where Jesus says, this bread, my body, is for you. And this cup, this, this blood, that my blood that is poured out, it is for you. The answer, why did he do it? Why would he do it? Jesus, how could you? The answer's for you. His death on the cross, okay, uh, all that it signifies, it is about you and I coming into a new covenant with God. And let's just bring that down so it doesn't sound too theological and too religious. It is all about a new relationship with God, a relationship we could never have apart from Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus is doing here, the reason he's doing it, it all goes back to the most basic verses of Scripture that that people have even heard outside of the church. Um, For example, I quoted one of them already, uh, 1 John 4, 8. This goes back to the fact, the cross, the resurrection, it goes back to the fact that God is love. That's what it's about. Um, John, here's one you've never heard before, John 3, 16, right? Watch a football game and you'll see that one, especially when I was growing up, back when dinosaurs were on the earth. Um, For God, why did he do it? 
because God so loved the world, okay? And by that, it means the people in this world. For God so loved the people that he created down here that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes, whoever believes in him might have life, not, not perish, but have life and life everlasting. It goes back to John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends, which again is, is all about what Good Friday is all about. It's, it's what Easter is all about. And so all of cre- uh, Christianity, meaning creation, okay, when it all started, all of human history, Christmas when Christ comes, Easter, the cross and the empty tomb, all of it boils down to the love of God for fallen humanity. That's what it boils down to. I mean, love, the love of God for people who don't even deserve it. Before Jesus comes along, man, we don't deserve his salvation. And look, if we're going to keep it real, which is probably a good thing to do in here before God, right, in a worship service, you know, a lot of times we don't deserve the love of God even after Jesus. And I'll give you a great example, okay? Right after Jesus says these words, okay? My body broken for you. My blood poured out. The end is coming. This is it, guys. Right after he says it, you know what the disciples do? They get into an argument. You know what they're arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? The words, okay, the ink isn't even dry in the word bubble above Jesus' head. And the disciples are looking around going, well, you know when he's gone, I wonder who at the table is going to be the most important. Who's going to be top dog? And it just goes to show humanity. This doesn't rest on us. And that's the point of all of it. This is not about how good we are or how bad we are. This is about the love of God for you and I. The love of God, okay, now get this, all right, here we go. We're going to stack it up here real quick. The love of God that could not be stopped by a religious institution back in the day. You know, the the church in the New Testament is a powerful force. Those religious leaders, these dudes had chops. They could get stuff done. They couldn't stop the love of God. Um, uh, The powers of hell, in the Gospels, could not stop the love of God. Satan entering into one of the 12 with a really good plan, couldn't stop it. The sins of people could not stop the love of God and what Jesus did, even death, could not stop the love of God in Jesus Christ for you. And don't even hear a corporate you, every single one of you. You're the beloved because God set his heart on you. Man, I might start preaching in a minute. Here's what I want you to do, though. Let's meditate on that for a minute, okay? Before communion, I want us to do that. I want to invite you. I have a song here. I I want to invite you to meditate on the love of God. And as you do, every one of us has brokenness in our lives. Every one of us struggles with sin. Some of us have addictions that we are so ashamed of. We would never tell anyone. I mean, there there are all kinds of things. There's confusion. There's doubt. We all have that. Today, meditate on the love of God for a few minutes and offer whatever it is that, that, that feels like darkness to you. Offer it up to God. Receive his forgiveness. And then let's take communion and enter into Holy Week together. Deal? Yes. 
Father God, as we get still, as we prepare ourselves, um, we just want to welcome you in. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this space that um, a, a song maybe can't enter, that, that the words of a preacher can't enter into, but into that very sacred place. We just want to see you in these moments. So we want your light to shine in our darkness. Father, make us ready. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses our sins. Thank you for resurrection we're going to be celebrating, which is life and life to the full that only you can give us in Jesus.